I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Those of us who are writers have a peculiar relationship to Stephen Johnson. Basically, we think that it's not fair that uh, he doesn't keep writing the same book like most of us do. He does a completely new subject every year or so, and that he can do that and master the subject that he takes on, as he did with Emergence, for example. Uh, as he did with Everything Bad is Good for You, and as he has done with the new book called uh, The Ghost Map, uh, which he'll talk about a little bit tonight in a much larger context. He is a, um, a polymath, and he can do it in writing, he can do it in presenting, as you'll see, and will you please welcome Stephen Johnson. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Stuart. That's far too kind. I think I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to disappoint anyone after that introduction. Um, I want to thank a few people. Um, first, those of you who preferred the 7.30 time, who nonetheless made it here uh, today, I'm particularly grateful to you. Uh, clearly, the strategy going forward should be to vary the time slightly with each event, just to throw people off and see who your really loyal customers are. Um, and, and I want to thank uh, Long Now, which I'm a huge fan of, and, and folks like Stuart and, and Kevin and Danny and Esther and Brian uh, and Alexander, whose work I've just been admiring up close and from afar for a long time. Uh, it's a great institution, this event, which I've, I've never seen any of these talks, but I've kind of followed them online uh, since they came around, and so it's an honor to be here as part of this. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, this idea, the, the long Zoom. Um, Technically, you're required to come up with a catchphrase that has the long something. Um, there's the long boom and the, and the long tail and the long now. Um, the long zoom and boom, I think, is very exciting that it rhymes like that. So uh, it's just an extension of the whole brand that I'm very proud of. Uh, uh, but it is uh, it, some of these themes are going to be kind of worked into my next book, um, which which right now is not actually called the long zoom, um, but who knows what's going to happen. Um, it's still a, a long way off. But in some ways, I'm going to be looking at some of the themes that have shown up in the, in the last couple of books and kind of explain them in the context of what I mean by the long zoom. Um, it, it's, it's especially nice to be asked to, to come here at, at long now to talk about this idea because this is, is really not an idea about kind of thinking across the, the scales of time, but rather thinking more across different spatial scales um, and across different disciplines. Um, it's the, the conceptual move from the, from the very large to the very small and being able to kind of capture all the scales in between those stages and, and, to, and to use that framework in a useful way. That's, that's what I'm calling the long zoom. Um, and I, I, I wanted to just start by 
one, acknowledging that this is not a new idea, what I think is interesting here is that um, it's, it's a framework or it's a perspective that's becoming increasingly kind of current and contemporary and accessible thanks to technology and science and in some ways to, to popular culture, which I'll talk about a little bit. But I, I thought it'd be useful just to start with a little bit of prior art to acknowledge uh, some, of the, some of the things that had happened in, in, in the past, some icons of this kind of perspective. Um, the, the, the first is this classic sequence from Portrait of the Artist of the Young Man, um, where the young Stephen Dedalus kind of writes in his uh, notebook uh, during his class, his, his kind of place in the world, Stephen Dedalus, class of elements, the college, Salins, County Kildare, Ireland, Europe, the world, the universe. Um, that's the kind of where I am, where am I in the world, long zoom perspective, how do I fit in, in all these things. But probably the more recent kind of iconic visual representation of this, of course, is Powers of Ten. I'll just show you a snippet of this is now, what, about 40 years old, 30 years old? Um, and uh, what's so, so great about this, I think, looking at this now is, is how... Um, exotic this view was and how now it just pretty much looks like Google Earth, right? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is an elaborate kind of contraption to show, to think about thinking across scales and how you can zoom all the way out. And, and now we literally are like, oh, I need to do that to figure out the traffic directions to this place, the baseball game I'm going to today. Um, and, and so it's literally this, this kind of perspective on the world is, is at our fingertips in a way that we could only really dream about. And I, and I also like the way that in this part of it, you, you kind of zoom out to that vision of the, of the whole earth that had you know, seemed so empowering to, to Stuart so many years ago, uh, and it was so empowering to so many people. Um, and I think in, in some ways what we're talking about here is, is not just what happens when you can see the whole earth in, in kind of one frame, but what happens when you can then move from that frame all the way into the guy's hand in the, in the picnic a blanket, and then all the way into the, you know, subatomic particles revolving around inside that hand. That's the that's the long zoom perspective. And then, just to update it, I could have shown you a million examples of this, um, but uh, the one I thought was kind of the the, the, the catchiest is uh, I'm just showing you part of this. This is the opening sequence of Fight Club. There you go. I'm not, and there's no sound here, but you get the idea. It actually starts. Uh, inside, all the way inside, you know, kind of synaptic firings inside Edward Norton's brain, and then uh, slowly kind of zooms out all the way to the little beads of sweat, and then all the way back to the to the gun, barrel of the gun, and then to the actual kind of opening shot. There you see him there. Um, but you know, every other episode of CSI has a sequence like that now too. You know, I mean, this is this is a commonplace. And part of this is when you start seeing these, in a sense, ways of seeing showing up in in the popular culture uh, as just this kind of device that people use again and again. There, the part of you goes, okay, there's something happening here. There's a certain kind of perspective or framework. In this case, it's a it's a moving across perspectives. Um, but that's the point where you start thinking there's something something interesting and resonant that's happening. Um, and then the, the other little piece of prior art I wanted to show you, where the, and the graphics of this are even better than the David Fincher, um, is this uh, sketch that I thought Stewart had done, but it turns out Alexander Rose had done, um, but it's in the Clock of the Long Now book. Um, and uh, I love, I just think this is a great 
sketch. Um, and this is really about time. This is what happens if you look across these different scales. The point is that on these different scales, they, they kind of move at fundamentally different speeds. Um, fashion is just fantastic uh, up there. That is exactly the shape of fashion. Um, in some ways, I think the one thing that I, not, not would correct, but I think we slightly, I'm going to talk a lot about using the long zoom perspective on culture. And I think in this case, culture is, is talking about kind of long-term cultural changes. Um, and I would actually, the kind of culture I'm talking about um, closer, say, to pop culture is probably sitting there somewhere between fashion and commerce, um, moving at a much faster rate. Um, there's an interesting que question whether that deeper culture is also accelerating as well, or whether it's that kind of culture continues to exist at that slower pace. Um, that's something I, I don't fully have the answer to. So what I'm going to try and talk about, in a sense, is, is freezing this, not looking at that kind of forward projection in time, but kind of taking a one big vertical slab um, up through the middle and looking at at a couple of case studies where I've tried to analyze something across all these different scales and, and hopefully make the case that this is a useful way of, of seeing the world and, and talk a little bit about what happens when you see the world that way. And I wanted to, to start with the story that's at the center of uh, my new book, The Ghost Map. Um, the last book I wrote uh, before The Ghost Map was a book about basically video games and <clears throat> television shows. Um, so I went on to the next logical thing, which was 19th century cholera. Um, and, and actually, you know, one of the funny things when you do this, I mean, Stuart's kind of alluding to it in, the, in his wonderful introduction, um, when you jump around from topic to topic like that, reviewers really like to make connections, and they like to show the continuity and explain what it is um, that connects these two books. And, and I kept saying to people, they're actually different books. There's, I just decided to write about something different. There isn't really a common theme. And all these <laughs> reviews of the ghost map would try and kind of figure out ways to relate it back to this book about video games. And so there were all these kind of comic attempts where people would be, you know, they would say, well, with cholera, Johnson finally has to admit that some things are actually bad for you, you know. LAUGHTER and another one was like, you know, in, in, in the figure of Jon Snow, the doctor railing against the medical orthodoxy of the day, Johnson clearly sees an ally in his battle against the video game haters out there. I was like, no, I don't at all. What are you talking about? So anyway, but, but one of the things that happened was um, I wrote this, this piece about the, the game Spore, which I'm going to talk about at the end, which visitors to this event have, have heard much about in the past. Um, and it was a piece about this idea of the long zoom. And, and I realized as I was writing the piece that that was the common thread that united these two projects, that they both were kind of anchored around this long zoom perspective. And so it turned out there was kind of a secret link between these two books. But interestingly, I hadn't been aware of it until I actually had finished both of them. So that's, that's what happens when you write books. They have a life of their own. So the ghost map is set in, uh, it's a true story set in 1854 in London in, the, in late August and early September of 1854. And it's an enormously interesting period in terms of the, the history of cities because London at that point was the, the largest city um, that in, both in the world and the largest city the world had ever seen. It was two and a half million people. Um, by comparison, Paris was about you know, 1.2 or 1.3 million at this, at this time. And it was effectively a, a modern kind of industrial Victorian city living with an Elizabethan you know, kind of public health infrastructure. Um, it had no real waste management. It had no real public health system. Um, and people were literally kind of drowning in their own filth. Um, I was saying to Stuart before that I've talked about this book a little bit at um, uh, 
talks uh, where they were basically kind of breakfast events. And it turns out that people don't really want to hear about intestinal diseases while they're having breakfast. It's, a, it's an odd thing I had not anticipated. Um, and, but you had this situation where literally the, you know, the city, people would have these cesspools with, with human waste in their basement kind of three feet deep. Um, and you had an enormous amount of livestock just kind of running through the city. People had cows in their attics that they would keep there for milk. And not just the horses, but there were slaughterhouses in the middle of the city. And it, it had two kind of crucial effects that are, that are, that are central to this story. The, the first is it was an enormously smelly city. It was, an, you know, any, any description of London from the period, whether you read Dickens or Mayhew or Engels, you know, kind of starts and ends with, with, with this sense of you walk in and you're just overwhelmed with the odor. I mean, it was just an incredibly noxious place to live in terms of the, the smell. Um, but it had, you know, one catastrophic effect, which was basically that the, the waste of the inhabitants living in the city got crossed with the drinking water um, in a number of different ways because they did not understand fundamentally that it was a good idea to separate your waste from your drinking water. Um, and what ended up happening is that there arose this theory which had a long kind of pedigree called the miasma theory, which basically was holding that every major disease out there that was kind of arising in epidemic form, uh, most notably cholera, w- was caused effectively by foul air. Um, Edwin Chadwick, the kind of public health pioneer of the period, uh, testified before Parliament, this kind of classic line saying, all smell is disease, right? Um, anything you smell, that's trying to kill you, basically, was the idea. And so the city had instituted this incredible set of reforms, again, at the beginning, in a sense, of the, of the public health movement, and a lot of the things that we take for granted about the state intervening in the kind of quality of life and uh, the sanitation of a city, um, all these movements were initially formed to deal with the smell problem. Um, but as it turned out, the smell wasn't actually killing anyone. Um, what was killing people, most notably in the case of cholera, was in fact the drinking water contaminated um, with this, this cholera bacteria that was coming out of people's uh, excrement. And so the first wave of reforms, there was this incredible uh, reform in 1848 and 1849 called the Public Health uh, Nuisances Act, and what it basically did in the name of miasma was decree that everyone had to empty out these cesspools in their basement and flush all that stuff into the river. And then they would drink the water from the river, right? Uh, so you get the idea. Um, if you were a modern-day bioterrorist, you could not come up with a better scheme to poison the water supply of an entire metropolitan area. Um, and so the cholera got worse and worse and worse. And, and effectively, it, you know, at that point... Um, the, the, almost the entire medical establishment was basically f- facing the wrong way on this issue. So the question that I, that I really wanted to wrestle with in this book, and this is, this is really where the long zoom comes into focus, is um, really t- two questions. One is, how does a bad idea stay around for so long? And then when that idea finally gets overturned by a good idea, a better idea, a correct idea, why does that happen at that point? What is it about the particular kind of configuration of that moment that, that causes the bad idea to finally die off? And it, when you look at it with hindsight, it should have died off years and years before, but it took so long. And then what, what was the kind of the, the threshold point that, that caused it to turn? And that kind of question, why do ideas prosper at a certain point? Why do some bad ideas prosper longer than they should? Is, is a question I think that you, you have to, to ask and answer from the perspective of the long zoom. And the, and the threshold point really ended up revolving around this 
this week, in late August in 1854, um, at 30 Broad Street in Soho, um, the densest neighborhood in all of London, a kind of an island of working class poverty, um, in the middle of one of the more kind of posh neighborhoods, Mayfair is just over here to the left, and um, and uh, it's kind of got this ghostly flicker, the yellow dot there, doesn't it? Um, uh, and on, on August 28th um, of 1854, a very popular well, some of you I know know the story, uh, I won't go into it in too much detail, but a very popular well got contaminated with the bacteria that causes cholera. Um, within the space of about two or three days, the, the, the kind of most densely uh, kind of torrential outbreak of cholera ever to hit London erupted in that neighborhood. Um, Within the space of about 10 or 12 days, the neighborhood had literally been decimated. 10% of the population had died, uh, and, and probably 50% would have died if so many people hadn't fled. Um, it was just utter devastation, incredibly, you know, just gripping, tragic scenes of, you know, entire families dying together in their, you know, one-room flats over the space of 24 hours, and this kind of agonizing death alone in the dark. Um, just, a, just a horrible, horrible kind of scene. But... A very dark moment turns out to have, in a, in a bizarre way, this kind of happy ending because this outbreak ended up being the turning point in solving the, the riddle uh, of where the cholera was coming from. And it produced, ultimately, uh, a very famous map, where I got the, the title for the ghost map. Um, uh, many of you have seen, a bunch of you probably have seen it in uh, Tufti's books, those of you information architects um, out there. Uh, it's become a kind of an icon of great classic early cartography and information design. Um, and it was created by John Snow. Uh, and Snow was a, just a classic great 19th century mind, lived, crucially lived in the neighborhood, um, just, just kind of down here uh, on the edge of where the outbreak took place. Um, and what's fascinating about Snow is when, when this story is told about cracking the code of cholera and the use of this map and Snow's, Snow's role in it, um, it's often told, in fact, in the, in the first version that, that Tufti told in, in his first book, um, he, he got all, pretty much all the facts exactly wrong. Um, it's pretty amazing. And, and I, as far as I know, it's never been corrected. He, he then kind of retold the story in the next book and, and got the facts right. Um, but you would think he would go back and just mentioned that he had it wrong. Um, but basically, the, the story is often told as this kind of triumph of information design, um, that uh, Snow made this map of the outbreak, and the outbreak and the map kind of pointed him to the culprit uh, of this pump. Um, and in part, that's true, and in part, that's, that's fundamentally wrong. And, and I want to explain why it's wrong. But just to explain the map, for those of you who don't get it, the, the map basically is, a, is, a, is showing deaths at all the various uh, addresses, um, so these big black bars you see right around the pump in the center, um, those are places where the longest one is a, is a residence where about 20 people died. Um, so there's a bar for each death. And you can basically see the kind of death radiating out from that pump. It gets thinner the further you get from the pump. And one of the things also that Tufti didn't mention is uh, a later version has this gray line going around, which is actually kind of a map of, of time projected onto space. Um, that, that outline is the map of the area where it was closer to walk to the Broad Street pump um, in terms of the actual kind of time walking down these crooked London streets um, than it was to walk to any other pump. 
So Snow had kind of calculated all the distances and figured out, you know, this is the area where people were likely to use this pump as opposed to these other pumps. And in fact, the disease is, the, the outbreak is really contained almost exactly within the kind of erratic contours of, the, of that line. So it, it is undoubtedly a very, very powerful map. Um, and it, it's, it's a great example of kind of the, the power of visualization. This could have been a statistical table of, you know, distances from the pump, number of deaths. It would have, you know, taken you, you know, three hours to go through the data to make sense of it. Here you, you look at that and you say, okay, there's something wrong with that pump. Um, so it was very powerful. But Snow actually had the idea five years before he made this map. He had come up with the idea that cholera was, in fact, in the water and not in the air in 1848, 1849. He published extensively about it, actually, been roundly ignored by the authorities, um, had done a number of studies trying to find a kind of comparable uh, statistical breakdown where he could show the, the likelihood of the, of the cholera being in the water. And a number of them were quite convincing, but somehow they never took hold. And so he was effectively kind of sitting around waiting for something to come along that would help him make his case. Um, and so when he heard that all these people were dying just a few blocks from him, he went straight into the belly of the beast and started knocking on the doors to try and figure out where people were getting their water. So there's this interesting kind of symbiotic relationship that Snow had to the bacteria. They needed the bacteria to kind of destroy a neighborhood in order that he could save it, in a sense. Um, but he also needed help. So he came into it with a theory, and he ended up having a, a, a wonderful kind of partner in this investigation who's always been ignored in the telling of this story, who's the, the Reverend Henry Whitehead, who was at the time uh, about 26 years old. This is him at the end of his life. Uh, I have no idea whether he had a beard like that uh, at that early age. Um, and he was just this classic, Whitehead was this classic you know, local vicar who uh, was hanging out in the neighborhood, knew everyone, was just a classic kind of connector. Um, he was, you know, was constantly staying in the pubs until late at night with his parishioners. He was that kind of vicar and uh, going over for tea and all that kind of stuff. And, and at a certain point in, in the middle of the outbreak, he had heard word that, that Snow and this local doctor had developed this theory that the pump was, was the cause of the outbreak. And he started investigating because he knew firsthand that the pump at Broad Street had the best water in all of Soho. And so he got involved in this case, too, tracking down, trying to disprove Snow's theory. And, the, and what he had that Snow didn't have, because Snow was not really kind of a social person at all. He was a brilliant mind, but he was not, he was not the, the kind of personal local vicar-like figure that the Whitehead was. So Whitehead was able to get into people's houses and talk to them and interview them at length and to track down the people who had fled through his kind of extended social uh, network. And he ended up doing a lot more of the actual kind of uh, street-level detective work than Snow did. Um, and so ultimately, actually, drawing upon also a lot of kind of public information uh, that was being made freely available uh, by William Farr, who was kind of the head statistician, um, Snow, Whitehead put together this overall kind of table and a few other kind of charts, and eventually, over time, convincingly persuaded the authorities that, in fact, the cholera was in the water. It took longer than people think, um, but by the time cholera came back to London, in 1866, with real severity, the authorities immediately treated it as a problem with the water supply. They had already started building the sewer system to deal with separating out the waste from the, from the drinking water. And they instructed everyone around this new epidemic in 1866 to boil their water. And that was the last time that cholera attacked the city of London. So they went from total ignorance to complete conquering of this disease in London in 12 years. Um, and it was because of this this confluence of forces. So 
So how did this happen? What were the different kind of levels kind of coming together? Why was the breakthrough here? Part of it was because Snow himself was thinking across scales. He was thinking in this kind of long zoom perspective. So he was actively trying to find the... He, he believed that there was some kind of microscopic life that was, that was causing this disease. Um, he didn't have the technology of the day to, to actually see it. He was constantly analyzing the water for it, but the microscopes wouldn't let him see it. Right about that time, somebody in Italy actually was discovering the cholera bacteria, but Snow never heard about it. The scientific world really never heard about it for many years. Um, so he was never able to see this creature, but he was thinking that it was there and he was actively looking for it. So he was thinking on the level of, of microbes. But he was trained as a physician. This is crucial to the story. And one of the things that drove him initially to the theory that it was in the water, not in the air, was that the symptoms of the disease, the bodily symptoms of the disease, looked like something that you had ingested rather than something that you had inhaled. So his physical training and kind of reading the symptoms of the organs of these you know, people who had died from the disease, um, that was absolutely crucial to his development of the theory. And then you had that kind of human scale of, of Whitehead himself, um, both really the scale of, of Snow, his particular genius, his ability to do these things, his particular background that led him there, and then the kind of human interpersonal skills that Whitehead brought to it, um, his ability to kind of track down all these people to build that broader social network. And then the, the ability to look on the scale of the, of the neighborhood itself to zoom out to the perspective so that you could see all those deaths arrayed on that map. Then the public ability, the public accessibility of all that data that, that FAR was distributing. In a sense, part of the platform for this was an open source model of government data about mortality. You know, the, the government could have said, okay, we're going to compile all these statistics about who's dying of what, where, but FAR had this great idea that they should make that available to everyone because someone maybe was going to find something of interest. And without that open access to the, to the government statistics, the, the case wouldn't have been made convincingly enough. And then Snow was also thinking on the scale of entire cities. He did a massive map of, uh, of all the different kind of water supply companies uh, in, in London and their different cholera rates depending on where they were getting their water. And the very nature of the city itself caused this solution, in a sense, to come into place by being so densely populated, by making that pattern visible in the streets and the deaths on that map, the, the solution became visible in a certain way. So in the, when, the, when the question is asked, you know, how did, this, how did snow come to this breakthrough? How do we solve this riddle? You can't answer it convincingly unless you look at all those different levels, right? This is the, this is the only kind of optimal view that, that accounts for what really happened on some level. Now, there's, there's another word for this, which is consilience, um, an old word repopularized by E.O. Wilson a number of years ago um, in a controversial book. Um, and one of the things that's, that's controversial about it on some level is, is the encroachment into culture. I think most of us in the room agree that science works this way in thinking across different scales, that at each scale there's a kind of a discipline appropriate to that. And one of the ways that science works powerfully is by connecting the scales up and down the chain so that one scale makes predictions about behavior that might happen on the next scale, and then you bring in an expert on that scale to verify your, your prediction. Um, Snow's idea was, I believe there's something in the water, I can't see it, but my prediction would be that it would have this effect on a body if ingested, and look, I've got this evidence here that shows that, and my prediction would be when you get those bodies together in a neighborhood around an infected contaminated pump, you'll see this distribution, and at each level, he made a prediction that was proved out by the, by the subsequent data. That's, we agree that's how science works, and that's the kind of consilient movement from, from the very small to the very, to the very large, at each step another discipline. Where the controversy comes in 
is when you connect those kind of scientific disciplines to the cultural disciplines or the disciplines of the humanities. Um, and, and a lot of people, I think, wrongly believe that, that Wilson's argument is ultimately trying to reduce everything down to explanations that come from the sciences, when in fact I think that's not how it actually works. And in fact, each level in the chain has its own autonomy. The, the beauty of the model is that you can connect them all. So the question is really, can you have cultural consilience, right? Can you bring the realm of culture and ideas and personal experience into this, into this long zoom perspective? And that's, that's what I want to focus on for, for in a sense, the second half. One example of that kind of cultural reading is, is, is this question of why miasma stayed around so long as a theory. That's a kind of history of ideas question. Why was it there? Why, got, why did people get stuck with it? And I think that, again, it's one of these cases where you, you need to think about that, that cultural condition a, across these scales. Um, so it was a very old idea. Hippocrates had written about you know, the importance of air um, in all sorts of diseases. Um, miasma you know, is, a, is a term that that he used in some fashion. And then you, you also, of course, have the ways that, that cities were developed themselves, the kind of the lack of public health infrastructure, um, the lack of the ability to kind of see these patterns up until this point, um, both caused the problem and they caused so much smell that it was very hard to kind of override that, that immediate kind of sensory impact, which I'll get to in a sense in, in, in the kind of neuroscience of that. Um, then you had limitations of the technology. You just, it was very hard to see this, this bacterium. Um, so the technological kind of path was just not quite there yet to, to see around miasma. Then you had the kind of contemporary political landscape, and one of the things that happened is cholera was, was more rampant in poorer, more destitute neighborhoods in London because people were crowded in together and they were living in worse conditions. And so there was a great kind of political orthodoxy of the day that said, well, these people, because of their morally debauched lifestyles, have somehow brought this disease onto themselves. And that kind of kept it in, in place on some level. Um, and then you have the kind of great man theory of history where someone like Chadwick, who's very influential and testifies in front of parliament that all smell is disease and people listen to him on some level, that has an impact as well. And then the other thing that I would add to this is there's a much longer and, and smaller element to this as well, which is the evolution of the human sensory system. So for various reasons, we evolved to be able to detect very small molecules, uh, odors that signal decay. Um, whereas we do not have the ability to visually see bacteria. Um, you, can, you can have a glass of water that's contaminated with you know, hundreds and thousands of bacteria, cholera bacteria, and you won't see any coloration in the water, discoloration in the water. But you can smell you know, a cesspool full of human waste <laughs> from you know, 50 feet away. Um, and what we also now know from modern brain imaging is that the smell system actually evolved into a kind of alarm system in the brain, so that when we smell these odors, we have an immediate kind of revulsion reaction to them, um, which we do not have to a glass of water that contains an odorless bacteria in it. And so on some level, people, when they would smell these things, they would smell them and think, this has to be killing you on some level. This is just hard. I, I smell this and my brain sends off this kind of alarm system. And it was on some level just hard to override that system that evolved in an environment where people were not around decay and uh, vast piles of human waste uh, as much as they were in modern cities. So miasma is this kind of perfect storm of all these things coming together, working on all these different scales. So now let me, let's go from 19th century urban decay to SimCity. Um, it's kind of purple. Um, 
One of the things that was interesting about the, the response to, to everything bad is good for you is the defense of popular culture and defense of the kind of growing complexity of popular culture is that everyone focused, in a sense, on the first half of the book, which was making the argument that pop culture had gotten more complex. And, the, you know, there was a very interesting debate about that and what that meant and what effect it was having. But um, I always felt that that was kind of the easy part and that you could make that case pretty easily. And the more interesting thing was to explain why it was happening. Because we had this kind of long-standing assumption that we lived in a race to the bottom culture where everything was getting cruder and simpler, and you know there was a dumbing down effect everywhere as kind of a natural law of modern media and society. And in fact, what you find is this trend towards increased complexity um, that that was interesting, and we should have a theory of why that is happening. And it, so, in the second half of the book, I tried to kind of develop uh, that theory, and what that is is really a long zoom theory. But to just explain a little bit about the trend. Um, you know, the original story, the, the original kind of experience that got me on this was, was playing, this is a heavy Will Wright theme to, to this talk, I guess, um, fitting. Uh, uh, seven or eight years ago, I was on a family vacation with my wife, and I was, uh, she had a seven-year-old nephew. She still has a nephew, but he's older now, um, whose name was Wyatt, and uh, it was a rainy day on this vacation, and I had been playing SimCity a little bit, and so I thought, oh, this will be fun, I'll load up SimCity and show it to Wyatt, and this will be nice, and so we loaded up, and I, I, I gave him what, I, looking back on it, I think was probably a pretty condescending tour of, of the game, which is basically a tour of the graphics, you know, so it was like, uh, oh, look, Wyatt, there's, that's the mayor's house, that's where I live, and look at the little playground, you see the kids there playing, that's neat, and look at that big, tall building there, you know, and so this goes on for a while, and then at a certain point, I, I say to him, you know, uh, you know, look at this area here. I've got all these factories that are all run down, and I can't seem to get this part of town to work. I mean, this one's totally abandoned. I'm just stuck here. And he looks at the screen. And he looks, you know, back at me and looks at the screen again, and he's like, I think you need to lower your industrial tax rates, you know. <laughs> you know, and it was just one of those moments where you're like, whoa, the world's just tilted a little bit, you know. And... And it was one of those things where I thought, you know, here's, here's this kid who's seven who's basically picking this up. It wasn't like he hadn't actually played the game before, but he was just kind of looking at the graphics and the interface and just soaking it all in. And he was basically learning, you know, urban planning, you know, principles of development and lower taxation will get more, you know. And he was picking this all up. And if you'd sat him down in an urban planning classroom, you know, and tried to teach him this stuff, right, he would be asleep or out the door in like three seconds. He's seven years old, right? But something about this screen and the game and the whole experience was he was learning without even realizing he was learning. He was picking up, you know, a lot of information. Um, and so I started to think, well, this is, this, you know, every time I looked around, people were talking about, oh, these video games, the kids are zoning out and everything's so stupid. And, and I thought, God, you know, there's some, something really interesting is happening that nobody is talking about here. And, and you could look at it, I mean, you just see in the interfaces, I mean, you go, like, you think about the progress from this, you know, to like, to like this, like this is World of Warcraft, right? You know, I mean, you can't, I, I love, you think about the interface complexity of these things now. Like, what, this screen from World of Warcraft, like, you can't even see the game, right? Because the interface is like all, you know, like the game is the interface, right? I mean, somewhere back there, there's like a dragon or something like that. But, but you know, there's just an immense data overload. And this is, you know, this is legible to probably many people in this room. It's not actually legible to me, but, you know, you just look at all the variables going on here and somebody sits down in front of this and it's like, right, okay, yeah, I see what's going on. Um, so to be able to, you know, <laughs> we went from, you know, <laughs> So I'm like, oh, yeah, I get so once I eat the pellets, they turn blue and I can chase them. I get it. I get it how this works. You know, I can figure this out, too. You know, I can't even keep up with this. this is, so that's the trend. And, and w w 
part of this is our ability to kind of adapt at an ever-accelerating rate to new interfaces and, equal, and you know, kind of increasingly complex interfaces, which is a big part of it and the thing I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, but but there's even more to that, and it doesn't just, you know, it do, it's not just the games. Um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, a show like Lost, which came out actually after Everything Bad uh, was finished, um, you know, it's kind of the great, you know, to me, kind of vindication of the theory. You have this huge, mega, international hit show that is just astonishingly complex in terms of the number. When you think about, those of you who watch it, you think about the number of kind of open variables and narrative plot lines and mysteries. You know, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of things that we don't know. I mean, to the point of great annoyance. But you're still, you know, they're demanding an amazing amount of uh, just a buffer, a huge buffer in the, in the, in the kind of me narrative memory of the audience. Um, and with Lost, it's great because there's a control study for this, too, because it's like people stranded on a desert island trying to deal with this crazy island. And, like, you know, television, we did that once before, right? <laughs> so... Yes, you can look. So there's Gilligan, and uh, there's Locke, and you know you, you can tell which one has gotten more complex. And, and in fact, <laughs> Lost is is itself a kind of a long zoom show. So if you think about what what kinds of plot lines, are, you know, what are the things that are relevant to the plot of Lost? Um, that you know, they really there are there are things up and down the, the chain that are central to the plot of the show. So there's a basic kind of ontological question of like, are these people even alive? Right? I mean, that is the thing that the show is wrestling with all the time. Like, did they die? And this is all just a dream, or is one of them is Hurley insane, and it's all his hallucination? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that the fans are dealing with. And this is huge biological question of these women. I'm not going to give anything away, I promise. But this question about women on the island getting pregnant, and what's going on? And there's this whole there was an ultrasound, you know, in this a couple of weeks ago. Um, then there's this kind of sociological thing of the others and these different groups and, and, you know, there's this whole question of kind of large group behavior and who these people are and bands coming together and then there's an immense amount of technology in it, old technology, new technology, um, and, and a basic question of whether, whether there's magic in the world is a big question, big question that, that people want to know. I mean, there's a lot of technology and the question is can the seemingly supernatural things be explained? Then you have this shadowy corporate world, um, the Dharma Initiative, kind of hovering over the whole thing. So you have this kind of global corporate kind of backstory, and then you have the physical geography of the island. So this, this you know, to, to ask of a show like Lost, what is you know front and center in the narrative? Where does the narrative live? Like it really, truly lives on all those different levels. And if you went back to, you know, the most complex shows from from the 80s, if you went back to Hill Street Blues or something like that, you know, it would, it would basically live, you know, kind of in sociology, you know, somewhere between biology and sociology. It's like individual people, maybe a little bit of kind of the city, a little bit of the city in, in that. But basically it would live, you know, there would, you would never have kind of ontological issues and you don't have a big geographic issues. I mean, it's just basically kind of clustered in this kind of zone of people, groups of people, the workplace, crimes. The Wire, by the way, is a show that's structured like this too without maybe the ontology. Um, but everything else is there. So, so, so that's basically the you know a couple of examples of this increasing complexity. So the question is, why is it happening, right? Why are we having this upward trend? And and so I I, I kind of tried to identify a couple of different things. Um, the, and and they came from again from different disciplines. Um, and again, it's this kind of convergence of of different scales that that caused this to happen. The first thing that I came across uh, when I was writing my book about the brain, uh, mind wide open. It's something that the brain scientist uh, Jak Pankcep calls the seeking circuitry of the brain, which is a kind of a subsystem of the brain that is largely uh, kind of modified by the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is central to 
many, many things, but including addiction. Um, and the seeking circuitry is basically optimized for systems involving or experiences involving reward and exploration. Right? So, so anytime you're in a situation where you basically are, are seeking reward um, you, and you have a kind of a reward-craving feeling, you have a very strong drive to explore your environment. If you've ever kind of been around somebody who's going through like withdrawal from, from a dopamine-modified drug like you know, kind of cocaine or something like that, you know, the kind of craving, searching your room, looking for the drug, hallucinating, all that kind of stuff is totally the seeking circuitry going into overdrive. Most of us have it in kind of normal patterns where we, you know, when we're hungry, we go out and explore for food. We can understand, you know, how this evolved. It's not that hard to explain. But here's the interesting thing about it. If you accept this idea, which I think most people do, that there is this kind of reward exploration kind of nexus in the brain and that it's, and it has very powerful urges and it has very powerful controls over attention. So when we're in that mode, we really are focused and we're willing to kind of focus on that at all costs. The prediction from this level, from the level of the, of the brain science, is that a media form that comes along structured around reward and exploration is going to be very addictive. And when I, when I first came across that, I was like, oh, that's what it is with games. That's the structure of, of almost all games. They're, they're organized formally around rewards. I mean, games are, that is one of the basic things, is you're trying to get that prize. You're trying to get that fancy mayor's house. You're trying to get that giant gun. You're trying to get that magic pill that's in the corner, whatever it is. There's rewards, and, and, and almost all games involve some kind of exploration. Some of them, you know, they're whole multiple genres that are really about exploration, where you're really moving around the world looking for things. Um, and so that was part of the explanation there. And, and people spent a lot of time thinking about, like, how do we talk about games? What, what should be the kind of critical vocabulary? And I always felt that intuitively talking about them as narrative forms seemed wrong. You don't, when you sit down in front of a game, you're not trying to finish the story. You don't really care about the characters. You're not like, I wonder how this is going to turn out with Zelda. You know, <laughs> you're there because you're like, where is that lock? I have to find that lock. I have to, you know, I've got a key. I need to find the lock, right? And so on some level, there's that, that, that basic sense that we're being driven into these games by this, by this kind of structure. And that's one of the reasons why a 10-year-old is willing to put up with this immense complexity is because the structure of it is really optimized for the for the structure of his or her brain in that sense. And the other thing I picked up from the, from the wonderful game scholar and education theory scholar uh, James Paul Gee um, is this principle from cognitive science and kind of learning theory, which is the, the regime of competence. And the, and the idea behind this is that the space where we learn the best and where we get into learning in kind of a flow state where we don't even realize we're learning is that space where we're challenged but not too much, right? So if it's too easy, it's boring. If it's too hard, it's boring. But if it's kind of like, hmm, I don't know the answer to this, but if I try, I think I can solve it. That's the zone where people really end up learning without, you know, they get kind of pulled in and sucked in. And so one of the things that, that's become clear to, to a bunch of us who've looked at that is that things like games live permanently in that state. Unlike, say, novels, which have no idea what your reading skills are and have no idea whether you're bored or not or whether you're focused or if you've read the other literary references that they're alluding to, a game is very much aware of your skill. I mean, even, even Pac-Man got harder as you got better, right? It's built into the kind of DNA of the game form. And so games sit there at that zone. They're always saying, okay, you're not quite good enough to go to this next level. When you train your skills, you hone your skills a little bit more, and then I'll take you up to that next level. And so people live in this regime of confidence, competence the whole time, and that's another reason why they're pulled in, and that's another reason why they can be trained to do such astoundingly overwhelming things like make sense of that World of Warcraft screen. 
And so then I started to think, well, well, that's what's happening even outside the game in the culture at large. That people who grow up playing video games and grow up learning these ever more complex interfaces and grow up playing Zelda at eight, when you sit them down in front of TV shows, if you put those people down in front of, you know, Free's company, they're like, I don't want, you know, this is so easy. I want something, you know, in the regime of confidence. And so a show like Lost is one of the shows, and there are a bunch of other ones that are out there that have realized that there's a certain generation that expects to be challenged. And in fact, a show like Lost is kind of structuring itself like a game. So it's kind of played by people. It's designed to be explored. It looks a lot like Myst, in fact, in a lot of ways, the kind of one of the most influential games from the 90s. And one of my favorite examples of this is, this is something I found on one of the Lost fan sites after the, after the, <laughs> this, this thing is insane. Um, the, uh, after the, just not to give anything away again, but after the end of season one, beginning of season two, there's a mysterious hatch, and they um, blow up the hatch, and they go down, and the, the first episode of that season is kind of, half of it takes place inside this kind of underground lair. And, you know, two days after the show episode, uh, the episode aired, um, on one of these fan sites, this image showed up on the fan site, and it is an annotated map of the underground lair that some insane fan with too much time on his hands, or her hands, somehow I feel like it's his hands, uh, <laughs> did of this thing, and, and it's annotated. So all those, I don't know if you can see this, all these little purple things, everything's kind of purple, but all those little, little dots have numbers on them. And so, you know, with this, um, this is an annotated list, and these are all the screen grabs that they got. So they sat there with the DVR, the TiVo, grabbing the frames, and then figuring out the camera positions, and the little maps next to them show where the camera is. And then there's a description of all this kind of stuff, and it was just like, I mean, and it goes on. I mean, it, it literally goes on. This is, you know, uh, you know, just the beginning. This is, I don't know, it would be equivalent of like 40 of these pages. Um, and, you know, I mean, talk, you know, Kevin always talks about the, the wonderful idea of the gift economy. I mean, it's like, I love this. You know, somebody does this, and they just upload it, and there you go. Here you go, guys. I, I did a map. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Knock yourself out. And you know, within like you know, 20 minutes, somebody's like, "Hey, great, thanks. I noticed one little thing. If you could just, you know, so, so, but this is, you know, this is like a game walkthrough, right? This is somebody exploring the world of of Lost and trying to make sense of it. So there's this incredible engagement of people being pulled into this world, and I think it's because of that exploration drive, the seeking circuitry drive, and this regime of confidence, that they've been trained to the point where they accept this level of complexity and they ex expect this level of engagement. And the other principle, which is, which is really not a principle that comes out of cognitive science or neuroscience, it comes out of really more economics and technology, um, is, the, is the market that these things are being kind of thrown into, right? Um, so there was a, just an incredible speech from a number of years ago that it, from the 70s that a, a television executive gave where he was talking about their basic mission. And they were like, look, there are only three channels. So we got 30% right out of the gate, right there. You know? And so all, you know, but if we put something on that's in any way objectionable, people are going to turn the dial. So you get a little confusing, people turn the dial to the other network. If you get a, if you get a little too racy, then people turn the dial. If you, if you say something a little politically charged, people turn the dial. So what our goal here at, I can't remember if he was ABC or CBS, wherever it was, but he was like, our goal here is to make the least objectionable programming in the world. You know, that's, what, that's, that's how we'll make our money, you know. And effectively, that was the model when everything basically aired once and everything was live from the consumer point of view, right? 
So, you, you know, yeah, there were repeats in the summer, but, the, you know, there was, there was barely anything like syndication. You know, this is the 70s. There wasn't really cable. Um, there were no DVDs. The VCRs were just coming to market. Um, and so basically everything you watched, television was a totally live medium in terms of you in the living room. And it was, you know, obviously it was taped or live, depending on what was going on on the other end. But you just sat there and watched it, and if you missed something, it was gone. You know, people weren't like, oh, Starsky said that to Hutch. I'm going to rewind and see exactly what he said. You know, I'm not sure. I think I missed something. Or was there something in the back of the screen? Nobody was thinking that way about television because the technology literally kept you from doing it. Um, and so the television got really, really simple for an understandable reason. It had a kind of poorly trained audience um, who had no way to pause, rewind, or watch again. But now you think about the, the condition we live in now. You think about that person with the map who built this whole thing out of being able to freeze and look at, um, look at these images. And you think about the aftermarkets for DVDs. You think about buying shows on iTunes. You think about um, the incredible vast fortunes made by syndicating things. Um, you know, the, the money is more and more in making shows that people will want to watch multiple times, right? So there's a, the whole economics of television has started to change, in, at least in, 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 the, in this world of kind of narrative um, and, and fiction television. So there's this huge, you know, interest now of like, I want to make something that somebody's going to watch and then watch on syndication and then buy the DVD set. And you do that by making complicated things. You do that by making things where it's interesting to go back and watch it over again. And so you go from least objectionable to most objectionable. I mean, most, most repeatable. Um, and when you get to most repeatable, most objectionable, we still have, you know, a fear factor. Um, but, uh, but for most repeatable, you, you know, you're in this model where you want to watch it again and again because there's a lot there. There's, every time you see it, you'll see something new. The Sopranos, 24, The Wire. These are all shows that are big hits particularly Sopranos, particularly Lost, um, particularly 24, but that are you know, far more complex than anything that was on television before. So in trying to understand why this upward trend in complexity happened, you can go all the way from the, the kind of the brain science, the kind of cognitive science, the, the understanding how interfaces evolve, just a pure technological change of the processing power that's involved in making these games is obviously driving a lot of this. Um, the new forms of distribution and then the new kind of repetition economies that drive all that. To explain why this trend is happening, I called it in the book The Sleeper Curve, you have to look at all those different scales. The question isn't kind of fully answered without, without thinking that way. I just want to show you one, one other thing that, that's not my work that I'm sure a lot of you don't know about, but it's an example, again, from the kind of cultural side. It's, it's uh, Franco Moretti's book, Maps, Grass, and Trees, which came out a year or two ago, and I think it's actually one of the you know, most important books of kind of cultural criticism that's come out in, in a long time. Um, and what Moretti is trying to do, he's at Stanford, um, and was my old mentor uh, in my grad school days, um, so there's some overlap in, in our work. Um, Moretti's trying to, to take, in a sense, this, he's not called it a long zoom perspective, but he's kind of moving back and forth between the different scales of reading, and that basically literature has been kind of anchored in either the kind of close reading of looking at the text or then connecting the text maybe to the kind of cultural moment and seeing how the text kind of represents that moment um, in some ways. And what, what Moretti's trying to do is kind of greatly expand the, the, the approach. So he's made all these, he did a book called The Atlas of the European Novel that looked at how these novels actually move through space, which is really interesting, a whole geographic perspective on plot lines that 
that open up a whole new avenue. But this last one, he kind of tours through a bunch of different ways, you kind of levels of zoom that you can look at. And he's done these, he's created these really crazy charts. Like this is a, the history of kind of novelistic genres from 1740 to 1915. And it's all these, I don't have the titles on there because you wouldn't be able to read them because there's so many, but it's like, you know, um, the, the uh, kind of Newgate prison novels and the Silver Fork novels and the nautical novels and the, um, the buildings Vermont and all these different genres that, proliferated. And so basically they cataloged the actual stuff. He didn't look at the canon and he didn't look at kind of the anti-canon. He looked at the whole system of production to try and find what was the, in the entire ecosystem of literature that people were reading and what was happening to the kind of the species in that ecosystem. And when you, when you, when you zoom out to that perspective, you find out a bunch of things. One, there are a lot of species we didn't know about, right? I mean, the diversity of the system is pretty interesting. And two, they keep dying off at this incredible rate. Um, so there's this very kind of strong thing where like, you know, 10 or so kind of appear as a kind of hegemony for a while, and they die off after about 25 years, and then another 10 kind of comes into place. And there's a little variation there, but, it's, but there's way more diversity than, than one would have thought, and there's way more turnover. They have these shorter lifespans. Um, and Franco, he has a great term for this kind of approach, which is distant reading. Instead of close reading, it's distant reading. What happens when you zoom out far enough to look at the, at the whole system? But then he also goes in all the way to look at devices, kind of the evolution of literary devices inside novels. So he's, he's looking at actual kind of formal properties as they get picked up and become standardized. So one of my favorite examples of this is the evolution of the d- detective story, um, kind of perfected by Conan Doyle. Um, but before Conan Doyle kind of reached this perfection, there was a long period of kind of experimentation where there are lots of different approaches to telling a detective story, and <laughs> many of them very comic, and many of them not very entertaining. Um, and it's basically because people hadn't quite figured out the, the rules yet that were kind of satisfying to a reader. And, and it basically revolves around clues, right? Um, what, the standard that eventually got kind of um, hit upon at kind of at the end of, of Sherlock Holmes, and there are a couple of Sherlock Holmes stories where this is not true, um, but, but Conan Doyle kind of formalizes, is the idea that a, a detective story has to have decodable clues. So the clues are actually visible to the reader in some fashion. They're kind of mentioned or they show up. Um, and there can, there's some form of their connection to, to, the, to the eventual kind of resolution of the, of the mystery has to, be, has to be visible in some way. Um, so there's a whole range of detective stories where there were no clues at all that were published, where people were like, yeah, this guy was murdered, and what are we going to do? We don't know. Oh, my God, it was her. You know, <laughs> and, you know, it was just like, ooh, it was exciting. Somebody was murdered, and then they found out who it was. And there was none of that sense of like, oh, I thought it might have been that, because you mentioned that there was that. Um, and it was Conan Doyle who finally kind of figured that out. And then ever since then, you know, that's been the standard, and that's the way you tell detective stories. And if, and if somehow you come along and you forget to mention the key thing that was staring you right in the face, people say, that's not very satisfying. You didn't play by the rules on some level. So in this context, like Frank is going back and looking at the actual kind of evolution of the form on the level of the device. So what I think is starting to get built here is the beginning of a, a kind of a long zoom theory for, for how literary systems work. And I think the big question here, I mean, you have you know, the broad movement of societies, you have literary markets, people increasingly focusing on the kind of the flow of books and what people were buying. You have the existing biographical history of authors, which we've been doing forever in terms of literary study. We, we have kind of narratology, and now we're getting better and better at thinking about the circulation and evolution of devices. Um, but I think there's one last link there, which is the logical link down to the individual mind, what's going on in the mind of readers. 
So in this particular case, if you believe that there is, in a kind of evolutionary sense, this selection pressure on certain devices, that there's a lot of experimentation and then the marketplace kind of decides that they like their clues decodable, right? then one of the things we have to explain is what is that process whereby a, a brain is able to, on one level, have a position on a literary device without probably being conscious of the device itself, right? There aren't people saying, like, that Conan Doyle was good. He has decodable clues. There's just this kind of sense of, like, that was satisfying. I like that one better than the others, right? And I think most kind of theories of literary devices will have, will have to assume that the audience is not conscious of that, and yet somehow they are conscious of that. And if you get into that realm, and if your language gets murky, like saying somehow they're unconsciously aware of it, that's when you have to be more specific, and that's when you have to be able to say, okay, you know, let's, let's figure out how this actually works. Um, we actually have models for this. I mean, I've got a three-year-old son who's learning how to talk, and he's going through that phase where he's, he's learned how to you know, conjugate regular verbs, and so he's making all those mistakes by taking irregular verbs that he's, and, and making all these... You know, he's saying things like, I bringed it, because somehow he has learned the rule that that's how you, you, you make a, a past tense verb. And he's executing that rule very nicely. It's producing the wrong word, so we notice it. Um, but he, obviously he's not conscious of that. He's not aware that, oh, this is actually how you, you, know, this is how you conjugate these things. Um, so there may be some kind of neuroscience basis for this that we can understand. We can understand what's actually going on in the brain. But if it gets to the level, I mean, it's like that classic cartoon where they have the giant science equation on the chalkboard and it's all these numbers and formulas and things like that and another part goes on here and in the middle it says then a miracle occurred you know um, that's where we are here we get you know we're really good we're getting better and better at kind of connecting these levels and then we get to the actual brain and it all gets fuzzy and we're like well we don't talk to those people but we should be talking to those people and they should be talking to us there's a lot to talk about right so the question is how do you kind of exercise this you know what is what is the you know, how to, if this is an important way to think, and obviously it's an important way to think about how ecosystems work, it's an important way to think about how political systems work and cultural systems. Um, so if this is something that, that we want to do more and more, how do we kind of exercise this cognitive muscle more and more? And it's a, it's a great question. I don't have all the answers, but it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with Spore, Will Wright's new game. Because Spore is, as a game is the one that has been the kind of most explicitly designed as a kind of a long zoom thing. I mean, it was inspired by Powers, uh, Powers of Ten and, and a number of other things in, in this mode. And most of you know this, but it, I'm sure, but it goes through as a game. You know, you kind of start with this a little, uh, little microscopic creature, and then, you know, you kind of evolve into this bigger creature that you get to kind of intelligently design. And then, uh, and then you get out there, and then you're kind of on the level of your ecosystem, and you're hunting and seeking and looking for reward. Um, and then you, and then you actually get, you build a tribe. I don't have an image for that, but, but, um, and then you start building a little civilization and cities, and you kind of get to that scale. And then you, you start thinking about planets and intergalactic exploration, all that kind of stuff. And so it's really, it's, it's the great, um, kind of embodiment of this perspective in, in a, it's, it's a tool for this kind of thought in Howard Rheingold's Great Old Trades. Um, what I don't know, and, and, you know, I asked Will about this when he showed me a demo, and I've never quite figured it out. Um, I think the test will be how much changes on one scale affect changes on the other scale. Because on some level, I mean, it's going to be an extraordinary thing, and it's, and it's going to be an amazingly fun 
experience, I'm sure. But in terms of exercising the, the brain in this kind of consilient way, what you, what you want to have is something where you tinker with the microscopic life and you see changes in your city, right? That's, that's the real uh, kind of mind-opening, kind of awe-inspiring thing about this, is, is that if you're able to actually move back and forth between the different scales and see the effects they have on each other and to see it all as one kind of integrated whole, I think that that, that will be a, a, a pretty powerful uh, tool for the, for the mind. We'll see. I come back to the Joyce quote after he writes that uh, little description of himself in the world. It's this great passage where he says, uh, he, he reads down the list again. Then he read the flyleaf from the bottom to the top till he came to his own name. That was he. And he read down the page again. What was after the universe? Nothing. But was there anything after the universe to show where it stopped before the nothing place began? It was very big to think about everything and everywhere. That's, that's kind of what I want to leave you with. It was very big. It is still very big to think about everything and everywhere. But it's also never been easier. Thank you very much. write down those last notes. Is it true you're an English major? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a dropout from grad school, so I have to, every now and then I have to bring it back, you know. <laughs> Amazing. You, you and Lou Reed have uh, gone far. With, uh, what I thought could never happen. <laughs> okay, a question from Ryan Grant, who's where? He's back there. Right there. I see Brian. That's helpful when you point at the person raising their hand. Um, can we move from recognizing zoom levels to a really useful taxonomy, allowing us to measure which areas are most in need of consilience? Like with these last couple of issues oh, you were yeah. pointing at, you know, we aren't looking at neurons the way we should. Oh, that's a really, that's great. Um, a great question. I mean, the part of it is we know there is, a big fault line there uh, in, in precisely the zone that I've kind of focused on here between the, you know, kind of hard, the hard, the softer you get in the sciences when you get to the kind of that level where you start to get into kind of cultural theory. Um, and it's in some ways, you know, all of my books have been, one of the unifying themes they have despite their various topics has been trying to bridge that gap a little bit because I've always felt that those, those folks needed to be talking to each other. Um, and so, there's a question of like what kind of work needs to be done, and then there's a question of like what kind of links need to be established. And it's you know in that dispute, um, it's kind of everybody's fault on some level. I mean, I, I I should correct myself. I was a semiotics major and an English grad grad I'm even student. More amazed. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. So so I, so I grew up. You know, my kind of college years were spent um, you know deconstructing things, and the idea that one would you know kind of talk about you know, the truth value that was coming out of the sciences was something, you know, would get you kind of kicked out of the seminar. Um, like when I wrote Emergence, which has a whole long thing about ants in it, I, I saw an old friend of mine who kind of stayed in that world. And uh, she, 
I said, oh, I'm writing this book. It's partially about ants and self-organization. And she's like, oh, you know, there's a whole discourse about ants and the kind of rhetoric of ants that shows up in a couple of points. And there's a whole kind of semiology of kind of the ant that shows up. And I was like, no, 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 actually, I'm writing about actual ants. You know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, on the one hand, you had a lot of hostility coming from, from the humanities. And on the other side, you had people just not paying attention to it. And in fact, there's a, there are some useful things to do between those two groups, even even in the you know, kind of the, the semiotics world can connect very well uh, to, to the brain science if people would actually talk. So you can see those kind of fracture points. And I, I don't know, I mean, the problem you get into is people specialize. And, you know, this is like Denise Caruso's hybrid bigger, bigger uh, uh, project, um, you know, is how do you get people to think outside their discipline? And And if you can start to do that, then I think maybe you might be able to say, okay, here are the, here are the, blind spots we have right now where there's like there's an obvious connection that needs to be made um, and nobody is making it um, but you can't see that until you kind of peer over the wall so I totally didn't answer your question but that was that was, <laughs> that was my way of dodging it <laughs> well, well it raises a question if you've got something now to sort of offer back to these literature departments of a post-semiotic way right. to think about literature and humanities and such do you have that well I think you know it's interesting I, I was at a conference at uh, that Moretti had organized about two weeks ago at Stanford, and I talked a little bit about some of these ideas. And one of the things that that some people were just like, "What? You know, what do you? No, I don't want to learn all that." Um, and then some people, some people actually got up and said, "I have to say, they got up and they said, you know, when you talk about the empiricism and the truth value of science, you know, that's what led to colonialism." You know, so there's, you know, there's that still that kind of attitude on some level, which I just was like, "Well, yes, that's true, but." It's more complicated than that, right? Um, and then, but then there are other people who said, I'm really interested in this, but if I go to the brain science folks, they will not answer my calls. You know, they're just not, they don't have time for me. They'll be like, what do you want me to study genres? You know, like, I'm not going to be literary devices. I want to scan people's brains while they read Conan Doyle. Like, that's not how I'm going to get tenure. You know, so it's hard. You know, I, it's hard on that level. And I, and I can understand that it's, that it's hard on both ends. Will they wire up kids playing games? Yeah, well, they have actually. That, they've done a bunch of that. Um, and I, in in my went open, I stuck my head in an fMRI, which is a whole other hilarious story. Um, but one of the things that they found, they've looked at dopamine activity in gameplay. Um, I think separate from from my argument about the seeking circuitry, and they do in fact find that they're you know in these parts of the brains that, that uh, these parts of the brain that involve uh, the, this kind of reward exploration matrix, there is this kind of dopamine surge that seems to be happening. So it's an interesting argument in terms of the addiction question. It does show you, you know, on some level that there, there is something kind of powerful there going on, and that is why when you talk to your children when they're playing video games, they don't hear you at all. Right? Which re leads to the question, what are the best drugs to play video games on? <laughs> 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 now that I'm the parent of three kids, I can't answer that question. <laughs> we could probably pull the audience on that one. Okay, here's a question from Kevin Kelly. Uh, I love the opening sentence. It's only 2007, he says. Uh, we've gone from TV shows with three levels of scale to ones with seven levels of scale, only in several decades. Where will we be in 100 years? Is there a limit to how many levels of scale are fun, good, desirable, and bearable? And I have a feeling that number seven didn't come from nowhere. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I you know, that is, I feel a little bit that I'm asking myself that question when I look at something like that World of Warcraft interface because that's the point where I start to think I'm getting old. Like I can't I can't kind of keep up with that level of complexity. I don't have the 
kind of the time and maybe I don't have the kind of chops anymore to kind of be able. So I feel like it's already reached a point where it's extending beyond my kind of perceptual systems. Um, and it's only you have to be, you know, 10 years younger to be able to get it. I know there are older World of Warcraft players out there. Um, so, but I'll tell you, you know, one of the most interesting conversations about this that I've ever had was with Antonio Damasio, the, the wonderful brain scientist and writer. And Antonio, we were talking about this idea of the acceleration of culture and this kind of, again, this cliche, we live in times when everything's going faster and faster and how fast can it go? And what Damasio was saying is that we have to understand that, that, that effectively the brain, in broad strokes, the brain works at two different speeds. And the, the, the kind of frontal lobe, you know, raw cognition stuff, that all, all the stuff that happens here happens really fast. And he's like, things that we do there, we seem to be, we seem to have a lot of headroom, as it were. We can, get, we can go faster and faster, and it's amazing how fast people can get. But the emotional system of the brain is a bodily system. And emotional decisions, which are, as Damasio has shown, are kind of central to rational behavior in, in many different ways. They literally, they happen on the scale of like minutes. So for, for you to get that kind of feeling in your body that this is the right thing to do, which is central to being a smart, intelligent person, that, that takes a minute or two minutes, and it's never going to get faster. And so what he, was, what he was trying to say is that there are certain types of decisions or certain types of activities that, in fact, we've got a lot of room. We could probably just accelerate, accelerate, accelerate. But when things come down to things like kind of moral decisions, we've already, in a sense, started to hit the limits, and we won't be able to get around that. So, in a sense, even inside our own heads, we've got a kind of, we've got a version of that, that chart with the two different scales of time. Okay, here's a question from Robin, right over here. Uh, I love the notion of using the top-to-bottom long-zoom analysis to understand and solve thorny problems. Speaking of thorny problems, can you do a quick long-zoom on Iraq? Oh, <laughs> God, no. <laughs> I really can't. I'm just not. I mean, I just. I. It's a great. Someone should do it, but I'm not the person to do it. Um, yeah. There. I just totally. I didn't even try to answer that question. Skipping that one. If you got another thorny problem that long zooming uh, helps you crack. Well, I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is if there is a certain. The the thing I'm trying to work on in this next book. That that this is all kind of leading towards, although I've been very distracted recently and I haven't done any work on it. Um, but. In terms of this question of, you know, where, if you go back to the snow scenario and the cholera, like where, the question of where good ideas come from, why do they, and why do some ideas just kind of shoot out of the gates and others get stuck, and why do bad ideas sometimes get stuck? Um, that idea that you, that you need to, to think about it in a long-term perspective, and so you need, when you're thinking about creating environments that will be hospitable to, to good ideas, you know, a bit like the stuff that you were writing about in How Buildings Learn, you, you need to think about the kind of brain chemistry of the people who you're trying to encourage to have the good ideas, and you need to think about the interfaces that are interacting with those you know, kind of brain systems, and then you need to think about the buildings and the social groups around those interfaces and those people, and you need to think about the overall cultural ecosystem of how ideas move. And somehow, this is where it gets really, this is my, then a miracle occurs right now. I haven't gotten anywhere near answering this, but I think there probably are certain configurations of, of those different levels that are particularly resonant in some way, where they kind of align. Um, and that's my hunch. And, and a big part of it in some way is, is, this is one of the great mysteries, I think, where hunches come from, right? I mean, when I, when, when I wrote Emergence, um, I had been sitting there for a long period of time trying to decide if I was going to write a book about brains or about cities. 
and I was reading all this brain science books, and I was reading all these books about urban design, and then somebody gave me uh, this great book of 19th century maps. Um, actually, I got two copies of it for my birthday. It was kind of a coincidence. And it had this map of Hamburg that's reproduced in the book, and it looks uncannily like the profile view of the human brain. And I thought, oh, maybe it's one book. Maybe it's a book about brains and cities. It's a book about the common properties that unite brains and cities. That would be a really cool book. I have no idea what that means, right? You know, I mean, I had no idea what that means. But then I thought about it for six months, and then it slowly evolved into, into emergence. And so the thing that I think is so interesting is, one, what's happening in your brain when you have a hunch like that? You don't have the idea. You have a tiny little sliver of the idea, but something is, you know, reverberant in, in your head in some way. And then how do you create environments where hunches like that can prosper? You know, how do you create an environment where people who have this half-baked idea and show up at the product meeting and say, I've got a really half-baked idea that's entirely wrong, but I think there's something there. How do you create environments where those things have, a, have an afterlife so that six months later when somebody fin- finally figures it out um, and completes the puzzle, um, it actually has a, a chance to succeed? There might be something here in a mutual colleague in Brian Eno, because um, he recently did a duet with him in London, I think. Yeah, yeah. And he's been on the program here a couple times. In fact, he's basically the co-author with me of that pace layering diagram that you were referring to. We, we cranked that out in his studio uh, one evening, and Alexander drew it visibly. <laughs> um, when you worked with Brian in London, and Ghost Map was sort of your subject, what's Brian's perspective on long zooming? Well, I think, you know, he's also, he's obviously been so interested in spores as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I think he just, he just kind of gets it. And he's the, he's the great um, example of somebody coming from the, the, the kind of creative arts who has completely embraced all the information he can get from other disciplines. You know, so, he, you know, he's been completely immersed in, I mean, he reads a ton of science, he reads all this kind of stuff, and he's, he's completely open to it. And there's no sense of like, no, this is my territory, you know. Um, what's interesting to him are kind of problems that kind of move back and forth between them. So he's fascinated with the technology of it. He's, you know, he has no kind of sacred sense of art as being separate from empiricism or, you know, technology. It's just like, well, what can, what can you do? What can you do new when you can mix those things together in a, in a fresh way? And I think that's, you know, why he's just such a great mind to be around. One of the distinctions he draws between artists and scientists uh, he doesn't think there's that many distinctions, but one of them is that scientists are willing to explain what they're doing. <laughs> and, and artists will conceal that behind the mystique of the mysterious artist. My favorite, <laughs> my favorite story about Ito, which is vaguely related to this, that I just love so much, it, there is a wonderful uh, blogger in, in London who I read occasionally named Matt Webb. Um, and one day he, he put on his blog, he was like, I'm going to test this six degrees of separation theory. I would like to meet Brian Eno. That's one of you 150 people who read my blog must know someone who knows someone who knows someone who can get Brian Eno to me. So go at it. <laughs> so he publishes this. And so I come across this blog, and I, I just happened to come across it like an hour or two after he put it up. And so I sent Eno a note, and I was like, Brian, it would be really cool if you would just go to this guy's blog and, you know, post something in the comments section. And so you, you go back to the blog, and there's like, immediately, like, there are four or five people who were like, I know somebody who used to work as a roadie for you 2 who maybe could get to them, and I know somebody who worked at a gallery where he had a show. And then post number three is, hi, that was far too easy. Uh, <laughs> Steve... <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Johnson sent me an email. Uh, you should have tried some kind of African goat herd or something like that. It was one degree of separation. 
But what I love is the next five posts after that were, I know somebody who might be able to get to him through here. Like nobody, you know. And so finally I sent Matt a note and I was like, dude, I delivered Brian Eno in like two hours. What's going on? And he was like, oh, I didn't think it was really him. You know? <laughs> on the internet, nobody knows you're Brian Eno. That's the problem with it. All right. Sorry. Off message. That's another form of zooming. Um, Carlos looks like Maltzon, something like that. Uh, ask, what are the elements of the long zoom that will finally lead to the long overdue breakthrough in education? Yeah, well, what am I, one of the issues I have right now with the, the, the state of education, uh, which I kind of got into, I'm, not, I'm an amateur in this subject, so hear me out, but take some of it with a grain of salt. But, but the, the problem I have right now with the question of, you know, what are the kids learning, um, which I got into a little bit with everything bad is good for you, is that the kinds of skills that I think are being enhanced by all these technologies, the kind of skills you get by playing Spore or playing SimCity or playing World of Warcraft, um, the ability to kind of process large amounts of information, the ability to adapt to new interfaces, the ability to kind of query large bodies of information, to build kind of virtual connections with people, to, you know, kind of explore uh, spaces, learn new kind of social systems and rules on the fly, all of those skills, I have to believe, are being greatly enhanced by these experiences. And we aren't testing for any of them, right? We don't know anything about how this generation looks in terms of these skills compared to generations 20 or 30 years ago. It's just not something that, that, that we kind of routinely test for. But I, I ask you, I mean, you know, if you think about what you're actually going to use when you're 30 or 40 in your job environment, is it going to be the ability to master new forms of interface, new technology, the ability to search large volumes of information, build virtual connections with people, do all that kind of stuff? Or is it going to be doing algebra? Which are the skills that are going to be the most important to you know, your day-to-day life? And I, I, mean, I think most of us would agree it's, it's the former, not the latter. And yet we know everything about you know, basic math skills. And we know nothing about these other skills. And so the, the, the problem on some level is we don't, you know, we're, we're not necessarily teaching these things enough. Um, and we have no idea what the kind of baseline is in terms of, in terms of how these skills are developing. So I, I look out there and I, you know, you do see the test scores, the test scores are not always as bad as they look because you have to control for a bunch of different things. We have an incredible wave of immigration of people who come into the country with, with lower education levels and many foreign language speakers. Um, and so when you control for that, actually, the test score is actually better than people make out. But nonetheless, I mean, you look around at the society. I mean, have 25-year-olds ever been as central to the kind of innovation engine and of the economy as they are today? I mean, I just look around and I see so many people who are out. I mean, look at this part of the world um, who are doing things like that. And so I don't yet see the kind of brain drain we're falling behind the rest of the world kind of problems that we've been hearing about for 20 or 30 years. So, you know, I... I think we probably are doing a slightly better job than, than we realize we're doing. That's my that's my. Well, kind of it raises question. the question of uh, what you're describing is it's happening anyway. Right. And uh, would it be better or worse if it was happening intentionally? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, part of I mean, the conversation... Uh, Suppose we learn to play games in school. Right. I mean, the, you know, there's definitely... When you see something like Spore, you definitely say there's... This would absolutely be in every classroom. I mean, there's, why would anybody ever not kind of sit there and, and build a whole universe on all these different levels? I mean, you would learn so much more, and kids would ne- you'd have to tear them out of the classroom. 
And, and I think that's very, there's something very sympathetic, you know, alluring about that, right? But, but Eno had a great line about it, actually, when I was talking to him about it for the Times Magazine story about Spore. I mean, he said the, the flip side of that is, which is apparently something his wife said to him, is one of the other things you have to learn in life is to kind of tolerate doing very boring things. <laughs> and so he was like, my dream school would be, you know, four days of Spore and one day of mandatory Latin. Like that would be, you know, that mix. <laughs> Would be the total dream school. <laughs> that probably describes the reality. I'm going to finish with two questions, one at a very general level and one at a very specific one. Seems appropriate. Danny Hillis, coming in at the general level, says, do multiple levels really exist or is that just our way of understanding things? If they do exist, why do they exist? <laughs> Danny, you can, you, you can answer that one for me, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I think, well, it, I mean, it, a little bit it gets down to the question of what you believe emergent behavior is, right? I mean, at some level, what happens is the things on some level come together and they produce this higher level behavior that seems fundamentally different from what was going on uh, one layer down. Um, you know, I, I, it does feel intuitively right to me to say that, the, you know, the emotional feeling that I have is different from the actual molecules um, of the neurotransmitters in my brain, um, that there is something fundamentally different that kind of conceptually happens there, and that there are different rules that seem to happen at those, at those different scales. Um, so once you have, you know, kind of different behaviors and different rules that you see, I mean, it's, I think you have to be, to be very kind of far removed or thinking at a very high level to not have those different disciplines be useful on some level still. But... I'm sure Danny is ahead of me on this point. So, Danny, so do you have him. a follow-up question? Where is Danny? There it is. Right. I, I'm just starting, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jane McGonigal gets down to cases. Uh, where's Jane? Right here. Can you talk about the connection between the long zoom and your current project called Outside Oh, In? great. Yeah. Um, yeah, outside in is actually connected to long zoom and to, and to ghost map. Um, so this is what I've been doing. This is why I haven't been writing this book because I've been kind of working on this web project kind of full time. Um, outside in is an attempt to um, organize as much information as possible online, um, starting with kind of local bloggers, but kind of moving beyond that. That's related to the kind of human scale of neighborhoods and communities. Um, so it's part of this very interesting movement that a lot of people have been talking about of the kind of geospatial web um, and something that I've been writing about in one form or another for almost 10 years now, the idea that the, the connection between the kind of virtual organization and connectivity of the web, uniting that with real-world places um, is a very powerful cocktail. Um, and it was something I'd been kind of dealing with in theory, and then I saw two things kind of converge. One was... Google Maps and the release of kind of open APIs that let you kind of manipulate that data so you didn't have to build an entire, you know, kind of $30 million <laughs> geographic information system on your own. And then the rise of all these local bloggers who were writing about their communities. Um, and so when I, was, when I was writing Ghost Map, I was thinking a lot about the Henry Whiteheads of the world, the people who had that kind of local knowledge, and, and Snow as well, of their neighborhoods. And then I was reading all these great bloggers in Brooklyn where I live who were writing about their communities and providing a kind of a, a, a service that I was just not getting anywhere else. And I found myself, you know, the, the kind of first cup of coffee 
media experience that I would go to would be, you know, the local blogger Brownstoner in, in, in Brooklyn to see what was going on. You know, and when, when you start having a new kind of form being the thing that you want to read first over that cup of coffee, that's time to, you know, pay attention. Something, something interesting is going on. And so we, a couple of us got together and decided what we could do is try and organize all those local bloggers who were out there and try and tag all the information that was coming from them geographically. So not just, uh, you know, sometimes it's on the fuzzy category of a neighborhood. Sometimes it's a very specific place that has a specific latitude, longitude, or an address. Um, but we're grabbing all that information. We're, we're in like something like six, 60 cities, um, 3,500 neighborhoods around the country. And you can literally, this is the Zoom component of it, you can, you can type in your neighborhood or your zip code, and you'll see the whole conversation that's going on in the blogosphere or other things that people are saying about that neighborhood. And then you can literally just drag the map around, and you can see other conversations that are going on. Or you can zoom out or zoom in and kind of widen your focus and see more. And what it turns out is that the, there's immensely useful stuff that you can do that way that's not just you know, looking for a Starbucks, right? Um, so we, we have natural kind of scales um, geographically that that kind of shift based on our needs. So one of the things you can do is you can say, show me only, uh, show me stories about crime in my zip code alone, because I'm very interested in, you know, if somebody gets mugged on my block, I want to know about it. Um, but you might zoom out all the way to find out about, you know, uh, to the entire city to find out about, you know, uh, poetry readings or something like that, because that's something you're going to travel across the city to go see. Um, and so you can do all those things really intuitively. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, and, and the other thing that's happened is we kind of imagined that there was this kind of long tail of neighborhoods that, that kind of traditional media wasn't organizing properly, and that people actually thought about their communities. That was the kind of zone that people felt the most passionately about outside their family, and so if we could fill that need, that would be really interesting. And then along the way, we started building these very specific pages for individual places, like the local public school um, or a restaurant or controversial real estate development. Um, and those pages basically grab every story that's come along that's relevant to that from the New York Times, from the local blogger, from something a user has come in. So we've created like 15,000 of these places, each with a dedicated page. And what's happening is these pages are ranking very highly in Google because there's not a lot of competition. So last week we started our number one entry page was for the regional correctional detention facility in Los Angeles, California, where a certain Paris Hilton is going to be spending 45 days very soon. And we had a page for it because there were stories about her going to this thing. And there was basically, you know, there was a, there was a page for that jail, created by the jail, and then we're number two, uh, you know, in terms of the Google rankings for it. So we got all these people coming in through that. And so it turned out, actually, that, you know, this is part of Chris Anderson lesson here, the tail is even longer than we thought. You know, we thought it was neighborhoods. In fact, it's like, at, you know, the school, the, the jail. Um, and, and so there's that kind of big, unexplored kind of world of, of, of local geography that we think is, uh, is going to be cool. It's, it's at outside.in if you want to check it out. And very soon, every single one of the neurons in Stephen Johnson's brain will have its own website. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. 
Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.